Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We are in the second half of Exodus 14 where the affect of the Lord's display of His sovereign rule has apparently worn off for the Egyptians the Pharaoh especially, because he orders the pursuit of the Israelites. The effect also seemed to wane with the Israelites, for they, having followed the gracious lead of the Lord in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, murmur and complain to the Lord through Moses when the Egyptian forces find them at the shore of the Red Sea. And what seemed to work for their destruction will work for their deliverance and final defeat of their Egyptian enemies. Here we are again now on the shore, ready to make a breach into the waters together with the Israelites. Read along as I read for us Exodus 14. I'll begin in verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses His chariots and his horsemen went in after them in the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. O Lord, having read your word, we now come before its explanation in preaching Lord, may the exposition of your word be such that it would be an exposition of the truth contained not only here in Exodus 14, but all throughout your word, so that your people may hear you, Lord, that your people may hear from you this morning, that they may be encouraged 
by your spirit. That we would not just be doers of your hearers of your word, but doers also. We give you praise for such blessings found in Christ alone. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, where just a page ago, the Israelites marched out of Egypt with the spoils of victory and an understanding that the one true and living God is the one who has redeemed them. They now are confronted with the reality that their trust in the Lord would have to be an everyday affair. They were brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And they were led now into their journey to Canaan and they're immediately struck, or at least relatively immediately struck with this reality that their trust in the Lord didn't end with the Passover lamb. The trust in the Lord would continue on even into Canaan and as to its temporal reality into all their time in Canaan. And so this morning we make the descent into the Red Sea with the Israelites as they cross on dry land and learn its lessons together. Lessons that the Spirit of God intended for us as Christians to learn. Again, I go back to our providential reading in Hebrews where it says Moses was a testimony to what would be spoken of later. So the question for us this morning is what will be your stay and confidence when your new life in Christ, when we realize that our new life in Christ, that the fight in our new life in Christ is not over? What will be your stay and confidence in that moment? Will you fall back on some track record of faithfulness that you exhibited during a time of heightened spirituality? Will you fall back on some prayer that was prayed or some words that were spoken? Or will you fall back on Christ? Cast yourself upon Him anew, recognizing that it what began in faith is continued in faith. For we know that our old man is susceptible to the devices of Satan and the temptations of this world. And so with the eyes of faith, we read these accounts, and by the grace of God, we are to see our Savior's love and what is typified for us to learn. So my intention this morning is to is for us to see that the Spirit of God intends that the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea would be for us a type of the new covenant ordinance of baptism, and as such would show forth the confidence available to us, confronted with our flesh's willingness to forget the freedom purchased by Christ. So that we would see in the crossing of the Red Sea a type of, of the new covenant ordinance of baptism. And as it is a type of our baptism, it is also would show forth the confidence available to us when we're confronted with our flesh's willingness to forget the freedom purchased by Christ. May we see the confidence available to us as we see it typify baptism to us. In short, Christian, take heart for he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. If we look at 
our passage this morning under two headings, under the provision and the paradigm. The provision we see as we look at this simple narrative in its component parts. First, we see the provision of Moses, the servant of God. Moses is the mediator. He's considered the mediator of the Old Covenant. Psalm 106.23 Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him and turn away his wrath from destroying them. There, Psalm 106 is uh, understanding that Moses' position in the new covenant was one of mediation. He mediated the benefits of the old covenant to Israel. As a matter of fact, we'll eventually see this very clearly in Exodus when they get to Sinai and thunder and lightning and cloud cover Sinai and the Israelites say, Moses, you go up. Not us. Go up for us, Moses. Go up for us and talk to God. And so Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. And so we see that his direction is given in verse 16 that we didn't read this morning, but preceded our passage. It says, as for you, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Their direction, the provision to Moses is direction to do what? To act on behalf of the people. To display God's power to the people through the instrument that was given to him, namely the staff, to raise it up. And it would be by that signification that the Lord would then act and divide the waters. So then we see in verse 21 in our passage that Moses did obey. He stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. So their provision there is that they were given one to mediate before God. One who would be, imagine there was uh, 600,000 People, at least. And if you can imagine 600,000 people now put in a state of distraught or distress, the encroaching impending doom of the Egyptian chariot army, there was probably no less than 600,000 ideas, or there would have been no less than 600,000 ideas on how to deal with it. Though, They collectively spoke in some way, probably through their elders, that they wanted to go back to Egypt where they could be buried in their graves and they could serve the Egyptians. But here the Lord graciously provides them Moses. He would show them the way. He would provide for them this mediation uh, of the Lord's deliverance. The other way the Lord provides here is through this east wind. It says the Lord sent this east wind to drive the waters and part them. It says they walked with a wall on the right and a wall on the left. It reminds me of a kind of humorous story that was told to demonstrate this idea of presupposition. 
And the humorous story comes by the way of uh, a zealous pastor speaking to a, a skeptical either atheist or maybe a church attender who said that he had uh, learned that the crossing of the Red Sea was at a certain time of season in a certain geographic area where the uh, water was very shallow, only a few inches thick. And so uh, a strong wind, which were kind of known in the areas, could, could blow a seeming path through these waters. And he's, and he's telling this zealous pastor that isn't, isn't it interesting that that's how the Lord did it and that we don't need to believe that the Lord could make water do what it's not naturally prone to do and that is stand up like a wall. And he was intending for to defeat the pastor's zealousness in, in holding to the word of God as inerrant and infallible. And the pastor's response was curious because he said, Amen, praise the Lord. And the skeptic or the atheist said, I don't understand, I just defeated uh, the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And he said, well, amen that the Lord's able to drown Pharaoh's armies in just two inches of water. You see, the pastor was sure of what we had in God's word was the truth. The skeptic was sure in his own deceitfulness that there was no God in the heavens who acts. And so we have the east wind. We have the instrument by which the Lord exacts or executes his deliverance. This provision of this wind was a display of the Lord's power. It was the Lord's power that caused the sea to part. The east wind was representative of his power. And the wind, which is not tameable, which was not a tameable element, was at his bidding. How powerful is a God who takes the winds and we are experiencing them even now in our season. And he doesn't just harness it like we may think we can do by creating power or other things we do with the wind, but he tames it to do its bidding, to blow in a direction at a force and to bring about the standing up of water as a wall. Isaiah 51 communicates this as the Spirit speaking through Isaiah says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? It is understood that the wind was coming from the opposite side of the sea. It was considered an east wind. The practical implication was that the Israelites may have had to wait all night watching the sea part towards them. They had to trust that that sea was, that parting was going to happen at a timing that was commiserate, that would not allow the Egyptians to fall upon them. And so the night watchman, or maybe the whole of Israel in some form, was watching as the sea parted, probably from away from them, and towards them. And it is said that this east wind blows and it provides the next element, which is dry land. Waterless ground. So out of the waters, he provides land and not a marshy bog, but he provides waterless ground. Dry land. It's reminiscent of God's creative 
power in creation itself, where he separates one wa- the waters from each other and brings about out of the water dry land. Here, this wa- waterless ground is a, a path of escape, but it's also a path toward Canaan. As we said, as they came out of Egypt, they weren't just delivered out of oppression for deliverance out of oppression's sake. They were delivered out of Egypt to worship the Lord and to be brought into Canaan. And so we see in Psalm 37, 23, and 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. What a wonderful picture that is. I think I mentioned it last week, that idea of of the Lord as a father holding our toddler hand as he takes us through in safety. Here, taking the Israelites through the sea into safety on the opposite shore. In Isaiah 43, 16 and 17, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. What an awesome display of his provision in the dry in the dry land that was given to the Israelites to cross. He's given them a mediator, he's given them the east wind and that instrument and then he's given them the path and and then he gives them final defeat. In verses 26 and 27 it says as he Moses stretched out stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. Moses obeys and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Here, Yahweh executes two final judgments upon the Egyptians. We were taking note that in the uh, ten plagues, the Lord was taking opportunity to display the futility of their idol worship. Though we identified possible false gods that were, that were representative of each plague, it was clear that the Lord was displaying His rule and His uh, sovereign rule over all creation and the futility of worshiping anyone besides Him. But here he executes two final judgments upon the Egyptians, first bringing the waters over them as was ordered of the Israelite males. Somewhat of a full ironic circle where we kind of began the persecution of the Israelites where Pharaoh gives his edict to the midwives that they should, if every time an Israelite male is born, he should be cast into the Nile and covered by the waters. Well, now we have all the Egyptian army cast into the sea. Second, it occurred at daybreak. This final judgment occurred at daybreak. Do you remember 
our plagues being broken up in three sets of threes, and the first thir- first plague in each set, Moses and Aaron met Pharaoh at the water in the morning. In the morning, at daybreak, this was the appointed time of Pharaoh's worship. Maybe Pharaoh was considering worshiping his God in that moment. Maybe as the sun was coming up, he was offering up his sacrifice to Ra, the sun god. When the waters come down over his armies and he watches them defeated before him. Here Yahweh executes two final judgments upon the Egyptians. And so providing the Israelites this closure of protection, this closure of deliverance out of Egypt. The Lord was clearly and decisively displaying that he alone is judge and that he alone is to be worshipped. He was also showing forth those benefits that would be purchased by the greater Moses, the greater mediator, Jesus Christ. So on all that the Lord was providing Israel, he was also picturing for us, picturing for them who would have faith to trust the Lord, though they would see only in type and shadow, but for us to see in glorious reality in Jesus Christ our Lord. This comes not out of anyone's own imagination, but out of God's word itself, as I already began to read in later revelation, in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in other prophets. They refer back to this crossing. They refer back to this deliverance because it becomes a paradigm of God's deliverance and his intention of delivering a people for his own glory and their eternal existence in his presence. What is this paradigm? A.W. Pink says that the miracle of the Red Sea occupies a similar place in the Old Testament scriptures as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus does in the New. It is appealed to as a standard of measurement, as a supreme demonstration of God's power. And so the Exodus represents a defining moment for Israel for its own import, not only in their history, but also in their future. Thus, some of the latter prophets in the Old Testament picture the Exodus as a paradigmatic, uh, a paradigmatic of a second redemptive act. Paradigm means shape and form. It, it has, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a path made, it's a trail blazed. So that God would be displaying that when what he did, he's in a reference, what I did with Israel, so I will do again. A second redemptive act. Namely, a return from exile. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Here, the 8th century prophet Isaiah foretells that Israel and Judah would be destroyed. But that one day, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. I don't think it's a far cry to think about this in relation to our passage. Though it may not be immediately uh, contextually there. But... The Israelites judged by what they could see, the sea before him, before them and the Egyptians behind them, and by what they could hear in the moving of chariots. But here one will come who will not judge by what he see, his eyes see, nor make decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with, earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also the righteous will be the belt about his loins. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. We, we talked about this passage when we went through the armor of God in Ephesians 6, but here we see it as a display and a, and a messianic prophecy of what the Lord would bring about in Christ. And so what happens here in, in Isaiah, if we go down to verse 11, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Zechariah writes in 10, 10 and through 12, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And they will pass through the sea of distress. And he will strike the waves of the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. Surely the Israelites passing through the Red Sea on dry, dry land was intended by God to be more than just Israel's physical deliverance from Egypt, but representative of true Israel's spiritual deliverance from the sea of distress. Israel will escape from bondage. True Israel will escape from bondage and return to the land of promise, just like they did in the first exodus. Look at verse 16. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. That trek through the Red Sea is, is representative of, it's typological to our trek in our life. 
This is what the word of the Lord is saying. He's saying, just as I brought them through this path, so I will bring another people, a true Israel, through their path. Out of Egypt, through the sea, into Canaan. Again, the Lord says through Isaiah, prophesying of the new exodus, in 51 verses 14 and 15, the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Demonstrating that the wrath of God is displayed in the crossing of the sea, Nahum announced in Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. There it is. The path is the life from Egypt to Canaan, from deliverance to glory. What is the water? It's the sea of distress. It is that which is rebuked by God. It represents that is God's wrath. And so we see that when it comes down upon, not upon the Israelites, but upon the Egyptians. And they receive and they receive their due punishment. And so it is of no surprise that the apostle, writing under the same inspiration, connects the crossing with baptism. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, in chapter 10, verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Matthew Poole commenting on this section says that to be baptized unto Moses is to believe Moses so far as to follow his conduct through the sea and under the cloud. So we see there at the end of Exodus 14, it says that they feared the Lord and they followed Moses. Benjamin Keith Keach says, they having the water on each side of them and to which they might have added the watery cloud over them, whether it broke down upon them or not, they were, as it were, buried in the cloud and in the sea. John Gill says, the descent of the Israelites into the sea when they seemed as buried in the waters 
And their ascent out of it again on the shore has a very great agreement with baptism as administered by immersion in which the person baptized goes down into the water, is buried with Christ therein, and comes up out of it as out of a grave or as the children of Israel out of the Red Sea. And as they, when they came out of it, could rejoice and sing in the view of their salvation and safety and of the destruction of all their enemies, so the believer can and does rejoice in this ordinance, in the view of his salvation by Christ and safety in him and all his sins being buried and drowned in the sea of his blood. Brothers and sisters, Christ has gone through the waters on our behalf. We know well Isaiah 53. He was afflicted. The chastisement due to us fell upon him. He bore up our sins in his body. He drank to the dregs the wrath of God. And just as the sea was to the Israelites the ultimate defeat, so it is also a picture of God's wrath, and so as to the Lord though the wind uh, through the wind and by the angel of the Lord stayed the wrath up so they passed on dry ground, so we who in Christ are set free from the penalty of our sins pass through this life no longer under God's wrath. As we've been studying on our Wednesday nights or every other Wednesday night, study the, an Orthodox catechism and ask this question who those that are attending are being asked or actually being required to memorize. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sin? I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, in His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, as they pass through the waters, so those who are in Christ, who have put their faith in Christ, have also passed through the waters, untouched by God's wrath, which fell upon the one who consumed it in his atoning work. It asks again when it addresses baptism, the catechism, what does it mean to be washed in Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. And like the Egyptians who tried to cross without the protection of the Lord, so are those who attempt to do so without faith, or to add to their faith. For to add to your faith, 
To gain standing before God is to add to Christ's righteousness. Is to diminish his sufficient sacrifice. For those who seek to obtain their own obtain by their own efforts what believers obtained by faith alone will assuredly fail. By faith the believer obtains peace with God, but all of the unbelievers' efforts to obtain peace by good works are doomed to disappointment. As a matter of fact, you're doomed to destruction if you put your faith in your faithfulness, in your works, in your decision. So as we were encouraged this morning, we, we, come before our, we come before our gathering, we're in our gathering, and we recognize that we've been redeemed by Christ, and yet we've probably spent a whole week acting inconsistent to that reality. In various ways, we acted inconsistent to that reality. We sinned. We've fallen short. We're deserving of God's anger and wrath. And so we come here this morning not to be told, try harder, do better. But hopefully, by those around you and by this guy up front, to run to Christ. Turn from your dead works and to the living God who has done all on your behalf. And so by that, live in your freedom. And that freedom is obedience to God. Spurgeon says on being set free that Satan may plot to enslave us, but if the Lord is on our side, who shall we fear? The world with its temptations may seek to ensnare us, but he who is for us is mightier than all those who are against us. The movements of our own deceitful hearts may harass and annoy us, but he who has begun the good work in us will bring it to completion in the end. The enemies of God and the antagonists of man may gather their forces together and come with concentrated fury against us, but if God acquits us, if God forgives us, who is he that condemns? And so the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea shows forth for us the benefits of our baptism, and as such does show forth the confidence available to us, though confronted with our flesh's willingness to forget the freedom purchased by Christ, it shows forth this confidence that's available to us in Christ. In short, now maybe in long, Christian, take heart, for he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what wonders are in your word. What wonders still are in your presence. What glorious realities there are that we may be found in Christ. That we may walk through this life on dry land. Unassailed or untouched by your wrath because it fell upon another. Oh Lord, help us. Help those of us who still exist in unbelief 
to turn from our dead works, to turn from our futile ways and idolatry, and to see that it is by faith alone we may take hold of these benefits. And so rejoice in our freedom, that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Because it's you in us who gives us that power. We give you praise and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.